You know, uh, sometimes you read a book and it, it just hits you so deeply and powerfully. And I was on the phone with a friend of mine a few weeks ago and he recommended a book. And this was after we had picked what this series was going to be and we're getting ready for it. So he recommends this book. I'm like, oh, that sounds good. I'll check it out. And it has been so powerful. It's called, I got a picture here of it if you're interested. I don't make book recommendations lightly, so you can take this one seriously. John Mark Comer's The, Relentless, or the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, it's a relatively new book that came out. If you don't have time because you're in a hurry, it's on Audible. Uh, but it's a really short read. I mean, it, it's, I'm not a fast reader, and it's probably 20 minutes per chapter. I, I read it basically before I go to bed at night. Um, and it is a fantastic book uh, that I think speaks very profoundly to where we are right now historically uh, and just how fast life is moving, how the digital life is impacting us spiritually, how things are moving so quickly. So I uh, greatly recommend it. And so the big idea of his book, though, is that a hurried lifestyle is one of the biggest chokers of spiritual growth. And he makes the argument in it that with the, him, the moments that he's the worst father, uh, the worst husband, uh, friend, just generally the worst person that he can be to those around him is when he's in a hurry, which is a statement I greatly identify with. You know, I, uh, I'm very different leaving the house if I'm in a hurry, if I, if I feel we're running late. And the way that I drive the family out the door is not the kind of tenderness that I would want to have. You know, you're, I think about when I'm on them, I, I've got the, the two-year-old and I get her strapped in and that's like, that's like strapping down a mental patient. You're just, <clears throat> you can't get out now. And then I, I tell the six-year-old, get in the car and she's in the neighbor's yard jumping on the trampoline. And I'm like, get, get your shoes on right now. Left foot, right foot. No, you're not, you're not going fast enough. Come on, move your legs. Get in the car right now. And I'm just rushing and rushing and rushing and rushing. And as I've been going through this book, preparing for this series, praying a lot about this area of my life, feeling I'm in too much of a hurry, is I have to ask myself in that moment, what kind of lifestyle and what kind of faith am I handing to my child when I always make her feel like she's not fast enough? She's not moving quick enough. I realize that there is an enormous chasm between teaching a child to focus and teaching a child to hurry. It is not the same, and the impact it has can be extremely negative. One thing I've learned about God over the years is he is never in a hurry. There are times that God is agonizingly slow. Jesus was never in a hurry. He had a pattern. He had a way. He always took his time. And there was one particular pattern that he lived by. And just as everything Christ did, he, he models perfect humanity. He lived in a regular rhythm that was critical to produce a slow life, to remember how important it is to stop, to breathe, to listen to the Lord. It's remarkable that such discipline was required back then when you couldn't even ride in a car anywhere. You had to walk everywhere. Everything took forever. Going to give your neighbor a sack of flour was the event of the day. Even then, slowing down was important. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. And I want to read about when he talks about being the Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to read the whole passage, and then we'll be talking about it for the remainder of our time this, together this morning. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And he says, uh, on Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are, you, uh, why are they doing what is un <clears throat> unlawful on the Sabbath? 
And he answered, Have you never heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's important to understand for a moment the history of Sabbath. Where does it come from? It's very unique. Honestly, if you look through the Jewish laws, you'll find things that are shared culturally, especially the Ten Commandments. I don't know a civil government in the world that said murder was okay. Generally, they enforced non-stealing. In fact, you can see which laws were common and everybody knew about it. They need little notes. I mean, this is honestly how fast it states these three commands. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. It doesn't say anything more. It says that and figures, you know why. Don't do it. Sabbath is the longest command in it, and it is the most uniquely Hebrew command uh, in the law. They find no historical evidence that any culture ever did it. It's something that's unique to them. If there was a pie chart of the Ten Commandments, it would be the largest slice, and it begins like this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. On it you shall uh, not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's unique in the commands in that it is the most culturally unique of them all. Nobody else was doing it. And secondly, it's, it's the only command that finds its roots in creation, meaning that the, the rest of the laws almost seem as if a correction to fallen humanity. These are the ways to put bounds around your behavior, how you interact with each other, what you do with your lives to reclaim ground that was stolen. This is one that says you're going to do this because of the creation in the beginning when things were perfect, I established it. Sabbath being um, rooted into the foundations of the earth. It's deeply rooted in Jewish practice. It defined who they were to the world. In the desert, it set them apart from everybody else that they would travel and travel, do their work, gather manna. God was so faithful that there was double manna on the day before that they wouldn't have to go out and gather it the next day. He, could, he cared for them that the work could be done ahead of time. So there's this concept, this big thing that begins in Exodus of this idea of we'll do a little extra in the time of our week to clear one day to be a holy day to God. In the land, it set them apart. It set them apart from their neighbors. What's interesting is they reclaim their identity. There's a part in the Old Testament where Jews are just thrown out of their homeland. Babylon takes it, figures they have deep cultural connection roots to the Holy Land, and they jettison them out to control them. And eventually, they're destroyed, and the Persians don't care, and they send them back. So there's this amazing story of them losing the land and restoration. One of my favorite um, genres in the Old Testament is the restoration literature, Ezra and Nehemiah. And um, as they come back together, one of the things that defined them that was so critical for them to recapture was Sabbath. As they're rebuilding Jerusalem, they're surrounded by people who are hostile towards them that don't want the Jews to return. They don't want the power back. They don't want their structures back. And so they, they are threatening constantly to come against them. There's no walls in Jerusalem. They're working day and night and the work isn't going well, things aren't going in their favor. 
And conviction comes down from the priests. They say, we feel the Lord is convicting the nation that we need to observe the Sabbath. So here they are surrounded by enemies with very little defenses, if any defense at all, and they start to observe the Sabbath and they stop working one day a week and they relent building the wall. It's an incredible moment of faith and it's one of the things that makes the restoration literature so beautiful is that for much of the New Testament, it's this depressing story of this nation that rises up in faith and falls, rises up in faith and falls, and they can't get the idol worship out. They can't quit screwing up. But something changed in their heart, and as they come back, there's this beautiful holiness, and the Sabbath story is one of the most critical of them all. It remained critical for them their whole life. When they uh, willingly joined the Roman Empire, they made the Romans agree to let them to keep the Sabbath, that they would not be made to work on it. It's critical to who they are, and it happens to be the hot-button issue of Jesus' day. It is one of the most controversial, debated, how do we keep it, what does it look like, and the debate came up often for him. Typically, what a historical Jewish Sabbath looked like is it looked like this. At sundown, that was considered the beginning of the next day. At sundown, they would have a large social meal together, and it was followed by a day when the sun would rise of, of peacefulness, of thoughtfulness, tranquility, a time to pause and reflect um, when they wouldn't work. In fact, there's records of Jewish fathers would give their children spoonfuls of honey on Sabbath to remind their children that the Sabbath was sweet. So there's this understanding with them, this, this thing you can find in rabbinical teaching on the topic, that they are a holy nation called for a unique purpose. And in that unique purpose... They have permission to rest. They're a chosen nation. You can imagine it would be uh, like a, a prince living under a king. He is the prince, and so there's a certain amount of leisure that comes to them because, or comes to the prince. And so in the same way, Israel, prince of nations, the Lord gives them this particular special rest. Their God ruled the heavens and the earth, and so they rested in his wholeness and his ability to protect. And I really think that's captured so beautifully in the restoration story. Our God rules the entire world, and so we are going to rest and trust him to guard us on what was likely uh, the day we would call Saturday. But as so often the case, people ruin piety. You could write that down. It's nice and memorable. It's got two Ps in it. People ruin piety. Sabbath is not always easy to keep. What about times of crisis? What happens if your barn catches on fire? What happens if someone falls ill? What about issues of compassion? What if you have an ailing family member that needs help in their daily life? Should you saddle up the donkey, go for a a half a day's ride to help them? It was difficult to figure out how to keep it. And in this way, Sabbath was actually easier to keep by the wealthy than it was the poor. The poor tend to have more crises, more things they have to address. It's harder to prepare for it. And defining work became harder. What started as perhaps an honest attempt in finding ways to define and keep the law, we know that when they came back from Babylon, there was this deep desire of, we won't do it again. We're not going to break the law. We want to keep it. And so as much as it starts out as this honest desire to define, what is Sabbath? How can we please God? They turned it into something that it really wasn't, and Sabbath wasn't sweet anymore. It was misguided and destructive as they began adding to the law. 
Sabbath wasn't sweet, but it became tense in everyone's eyes. A day that you felt like your neighbor was spying on you to find out, did you walk more than so many wagon wheel turns in a day? That was actually one of the things. If you took a wagon wheel and you rolled it, how many rotations could you move in a day? That's not in the Bible. We just read the whole command. It had said nothing about what defines it specifically. And as they added to it, it became a burden. They changed the heart of it, and they made it stressful. Teachers of the law began teaching extreme adherence and putting in requirements that really are unbiblical. They made it stressful. I really think that this is a human thing. I think we do this all the time. With things God gives us, reading the Bible, prayer, uh, having a moment to just reflect— should be a really amazing, life-giving thing. It's how God intended to give it to you. Maybe the first time you engaged in those spiritual practices, it felt that way. But we're prone to formalizing and burdening it and missing the point when we turn it into a task. You see, a task is a, it's a thing that we must maintain or we pay the consequences, yet a blessing is a good thing that we wouldn't want to miss out on. And so we begin to make tasks of these things. We make tasks of devotions. We make tasks of prayers. And we make a burden out of them. But they're meant to be restorative. Jesus came to restore the heart of the law, restore the heart of the command. In this way, it's kind of like Exodus part two. The mind of man has taken the law and made it into chains, and Jesus has come to break those chains and give them life again. Of these kind of aberrations to the law, these additions, these things that ruined the heart, added a burden to it, it became a checklist of things to do. Uh, Jesus says this to uh, teachers of the law in Luke 11. He says, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. Jesus came to restore the joy of God and the joy of following God. To remind us that our faith should invigorate us, it should lift us up, it should give us energy, not tear us down. You could say Christ came to make Sabbath sweet again. It had turned sour, and he's coming to make it sweet once more. Of this kind of renewal, Jesus said this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on, or, or excuse me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I guess a question for us is, is that how it feels right now? Your Christian face, does the yoke feel easy? Is the burden light? Do you feel like Christ is lifting burdens off of you, that it's becoming lighter, or does it ever feel like a task list that you need to complete? That invitation is the heart of the Father for you. I want you to hear this invitation one more time translated in the Message Bible. The translator, Eugene Peterson, he takes the overall idea and translates it uh, conceptually instead of going word for word, line by line. And he translates the concept this way, understanding the original Greek language. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me and get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. See and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything on you, uh, or won't lay, excuse me, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The 
if your spiritual life has become a monstrous machine of demands that you fail to properly maintain, you're not alone. It is incredibly human to do so. God had a holy nation that was called, and they met together every day to read his Torah, and they also made the same mistake. We are also called, and we come together and read the Bible often, and we can still make the same mistakes. Many generations before you make this mistake, many people around you make this mistake, and the, the solution's always been the same. Go to Jesus and live. Settle into that grace and recover joy. Rediscover your faith you had like a child, that the Lord is not your taskmaster. Master. He is your burden sharer and your perfect leader who lifts the weight off of you. He cares for the needs of your whole body, of your whole, your whole being, body, soul, and spirit. The story of David's an interesting one. David comes in and eats the bread that was supposed to be only for priests. This would be a much bigger no-no than picking wheat on the Sabbath day. It was actually considered work because they said that's harvesting. Like when I'm saying they wrote extra laws, that's how many extra there were. You couldn't pick it. Unless it was picked the day before and the bread was already baked, you can't touch it. That's harvesting. So for them to pull these, go like that, as it says they did in Luke, and blow it away, they said harvesting, threshing, yeah, that's, that's work on the Sabbath. That's a stupid command. Eating the bread that's supposed to be sacredly for the priest that it says in the book of the law is a crime, that's a bigger deal. And yet what we find is that uh, when Abiathar, the high priest, gives the bread, he fulfills the heart of the law, of the Lord's table and his bread and his care for the nation. The lesson is, is that people always come before ceremony to God. People will always come before ceremony to God. Now, I say that saying there's nothing wrong with ceremony. Ceremony can be a powerful thing. Ceremony can be very powerful. Lighting candles, praying in your special place, communion, laying on hands in prayer. These are powerful things. And maybe we can make them alive to us again as we realize people come before ceremony. They are blessings and not tasks. And this brings Jesus to the beautiful end point. Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You weren't made for the upkeep of spiritual disciplines. The, the word incarnate, Christ incarnate, the ultimate authority on God's commands says that spiritual disciplines were made for the upkeep of you. It is a gift from God. Your spiritual knife is not some crazy machine. We crank the, the little handles and we flip the switches and we have to keep everything going and change the belts and make sure everything's going fine. All of these things are blessings, ways that God restores us, that he created for us to have. I think for a lot of us, especially if you've been saved for a while, there comes a time when you need to retaste and remember that the Lord is good, that it is good and it's a blessing and it is a wonderful thing to have him in our lives, to, to give that time of devotion, that God's not up there checking off a list. Did we do it? Did, did we read the Bible today? Did we get the daily Bible verse that comes through the Bible app? Did you say your prayers before bedtime? We make these structures and these rules about these things. And we find out we are just as prone to doing what the Pharisees did themselves. We are them. We will do it very quickly and very easily. And we forget the amazing gift and freedom we have to live out the spiritual life. There's something really interesting here, and it, asks, it answers a question that I think is worth asking. 
is the Sabbath for the new covenant? Is the Sabbath, um, like many of the dietary laws and certain things, does it pass with the old covenant, or is it still God's prescription for Christians? We know that Christians have historically kept the Sabbath for a long, long time. The United States used to have what they called blue laws, where the counties would shut all business down. You actually couldn't do business. And so the, the guy that wrote that book, uh, he, his dad remembers that happening in San Francisco. San Francisco had blue laws. And on Sundays, everything got closed. So we know Christians did keep it. We know that we don't keep it often. We wonder, is it still for us? Is it still for the new covenant? And I think we have a... a a hint in this, Jesus' closing statement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, we know because they didn't pick up rocks and start trying to kill him that they didn't understand what he said there. They probably interpreted that Son of Man meant mankind is Lord of the Sabbath. In context, it would almost pass. But we know this, Jesus always used that phrase 100% of the time. This would be the only time in the Gospels he didn't use it this way. He used it every single time to refer to himself, his mandate as Messiah, who he was, what he did, what his job was, what he taught. What they heard is that mankind was master of a restful day, but we know what Jesus was really saying here. That the Messiah is Lord of the Sabbath. It's those who know the gospel who read it. It's for Christians that that phrase is written down. We're the ones that have the the benefit of having read the gospels and knowing what that means. The apostles, when when they wrote these stories down, it was after his death, after Christianity was structuring, becoming what they were, that phrase is in there for a purpose. That Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, and since he is Lord of the Sabbath, since he's Lord of the new covenant, Sabbath remains a thing that the Lord still gifts us with today. It's not a command. In fact, it's, it, Christ feels that it's ill-fitting to say such a thing. Sabbath was made for man. In the same way that we know from uh, John 1 and Hebrews 1 of the Trinity, Christ is the creator. The Father, comes, the Father uh, mandates it. Jesus does it. The Holy Spirit fills it. That's the the biblical understanding, Jesus is creator. He's the one that rested. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He made it good. He made it holy. He set the day apart, and he made it a day for us to partake in. Sabbath, like the other Ten Commandments, is still divine direction for us. If we said Sabbath wasn't for Christians, it would be the only one of the Ten Commandments we feel like is that way. We still can't steal. We still can't murder. Those are still things God doesn't want us to do. He still doesn't want us to covet our neighbor's wife. He still doesn't want us to worship other gods before him. We have the full catalog of things that, we're not, that, that, that are destructive. God says, do not do this. He protects us from those things. And there is another command in there, and it's not something that we can easily say we can pull one out and keep the other nine. This is still a directive from God. It's still something that he wants you to have because you are a holy priesthood called for a special purpose, and you have a special status, and you rest in a special way. Peter wrote this, and he wrote this to Gentiles. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Being part of this royal priesthood means that there is a special day set apart for you that is part of our spiritual formation. It's only very recent that we have felt that it isn't that way. 
It's a blessing because of your status, because of who you are, not for you to keep it because it's some command, but for the goodness of your soul. Sabbath wasn't, or you weren't made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for you, and it is a blessing, and it is a restoring thing. You see, uh, holidays in Scripture, special holy days, they're like a merry-go-round. It's that moment when the kid grabs it and they push again, and the momentum keeps going. There's this idea that they would observe holidays not so they would only remember Passover on Passover, but that the concepts would be remembered all year long and there'd be a special time that they would make sure they keep the momentum in the nation, keep people remembering. Remember that the Lord delivered you out of uh, the land of Egypt. Remember that he passed over you. They would remember Purim. Remember that God defended you from Haman. He defends you from your enemies who are more powerful than you. These, all of these things are meant to spin and turn in the holidays. Keep the nation remembering key things. One of the things that keeps us from getting away from a hurried life and slowing down is the sacred day that adds the momentum back. On six days that we, we work, but on the seventh day is a holy day for God. Sabbath is a sacred day. And without it, I'm not entirely sure we can defeat the hurry bug that purges our lives of spiritual meaning. Weirdest thing happened last night. Victoria was wrestling with, with her cousin. They're in the middle of it, and she wanted the wrestling match to stop, so I'm being an idiot. I'm thinking she's just being dramatic, but she's like, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Stop wrestling with me, Oliver. I think God wants to tell me something. I have to listen to what God's telling me. I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm just being an, an idiot, you know. The World Series game two is on. I don't know. I'm not engaged. And so she leaves, and she goes in the other room, and she's like, I feel like God's trying to say something to me. She said it like twice, and she goes in the other room. My mom sees her, and she goes, what are you doing? And she says, I feel like God's trying to tell me something. So my mom prays with her that she could hear what God was telling her. My mom starts praying in tongues. Now, if you didn't know, this four squares Pentecostal, surprise. We, we pray in tongues here. Spiritual language is, is this moment to where, uh, you see, the Holy Spirit baptizes us in power, as it says in, in Joel 2.28. You see it happen in um, the book of Acts that the Spirit of God fills people. They speak in tongues. Miracles happen. That's the context of that verse that's in every four-square church. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then on that yellow poster right there, it says he's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, one of the four parts of four-square. We believe that Jesus is the same Jesus who still who, excuse me, who still baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. So my mom prays with her. She said, wants to pray in tongues. And Victoria starts praying in tongues in the living room. She comes in and tells me, I'm like, oh, darn, I was wrong. It was God. <laughs> and I just, how beautiful the faith of a child. You know what I mean? I wish that I could be in the middle of a wrestling match with a three-year-old and go, hold on, wait. I think that's God. I think God's talking to me. Or being in the middle of my day and being able to stop, what is God saying to me? I think that is the voice that hurry is purging from our lives. When you're in a hurry, you can't hear so many things. You forget things that you would never forget. I would bet that the, of all the times that you've left, your wallet or your phone or whatever is at home when you left, I bet you've never done it when you're not busy. When we are busy, things go out, we're not listening, we're not hearing, and our spirit is the first thing to go quiet. It's critical if we want to defeat the hurry bug that purges our lives of spiritual meaning, I think Jesus' pattern of keeping the Sabbath is critical. And I think Jesus' pattern of keeping the Sabbath the way he kept the Sabbath is critical. 
it is not a command. It is not a law. It is not something that is this sinful, horrible thing to not do. Man uh, wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, and man comes before ceremony. It is so much deeper and bigger than ceremony. There were needs being met in his disciples to feed their stomachs that was bigger than ceremony, that was truly in the spirit of Sabbath. Furthermore, I would argue that those Pharisees are working on Sabbath because why are they following Jesus in a grain field? That is too many wagon turns. Jesus kept the heart of the Sabbath, and he has that for us too. I really think that it's time to reclaim it in our spiritual lives and how we do this. I keep Sabbath on Saturdays. And if I can't get it on Saturday, I try to transplant it to another day. There have been some weeks that have been too busy and haven't been able to keep it, but I have been shocked. When I, when I determined I was going to do this, about three years ago, I thought, there's no way. It's going to happen like once a year that I'm going to really be able to do this Sabbath thing. And I don't know how it works. It's, it's honestly, it's like the restoration lit, God protecting your walls, and there is no walls. I don't know how it happens. Most Saturdays, it really does happen. But I'll tell you this. Your anxious soul is going to buck back at times. It is not going to like it. There's a workaholic in all of us, even if that workaholic works on things that are silly and has nothing to do with making money. But like a bucking colt, your spirit will settle down. Your soul is going to settle down as it matures and learns a rhythm of heavenly peace. And that heavenly peace is the thing that begins to push back and evolve against this horrific hurry that deafens us to what the Lord's doing in our lives. Not because it is a command, but because it is a loving kindness, I encourage you to keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. Six days do your work, but for one day relent and don't do it. Sabbath is defined as this. This is the best understanding that I found. Number one is it is to cease work. On that day, we, don't do, we, we, we get extra work done. If there's something that I have to do on Saturday, I will work my butt off on Thursday and Friday to make sure it doesn't happen. I prepare. I, I mean, I'm a pastor. I, ha, I have to, I, I give a teaching. I have to, I get to give a teaching. Actually, I'm very honored every day that you let me come up here and share what I'm reading with you. But I don't work on it on Saturday. That sermon is completed Friday night before sundown. So we cease and work, we get that done. Secondly, we enjoy rest. That's probably the thing your spirit will buck or your soul will buck against the most. Sitting down and just being at rest, going and just having a moment to say there's nothing to do right now. The self-talk, the need to dwell with the Holy Spirit in that moment is critical. We listen to God. We begin a rhythm of not being hurried and hearing what God has to say to us, thinking about him and his word, having a moment to pray. And if God is silent, listen to the silence. And finally, and oh so fun, do what delights your soul. Jewish fathers were right. Sabbath is sweet. This week I took, I, I, I took the kids to the zoo. Some days we just sit around the house and have fun. We try to go for a hike or do something seasonal. If I'm going to a pumpkin patch, it's usually going to happen on a, on a Sabbath day. If I'm going to uh, go to a local fair or something, we usually do it on a Saturday, a day to delight in this beautiful life God's given us. And take that permission knowing this. You're a holy priesthood called for a sacred purpose. It's a special gift from your Lord, who is Lord of the Sabbath, to take that day. You might think it's indefensible. You may not think you're able to do it, but I urge you to take the gamble, take the risk and try. I cannot believe how much God protects that day. Do the work for six days, and on the seventh day, take a Sabbath day. Christians have traditionally done it on Sundays. 
Jews did it on Saturdays. Pastors usually do it Mondays. There's different days that we do it. No particular day is holy, but what matters is that you get the rhythm. God's in charge of your life. God is the defense of your life. There is a need to slow down and to listen. Hurry will choke out your spirit. And Sabbath is the rhythm, the pattern that begins to push against that. I want to pray for us today. Lord, I pray that that beyond the word conviction one could use, it would be joy. God, I pray you'd give us a joyful dream of just just what might happen in our spirit, how different things would be. The, the, the things, the depression, the anxiety, the addictions, the things that are the side effect of a choking spirit. What could happen if we kept this core tenet of something that's so unique to, to this faith movement, to the, to the people that are your people, of which we belong? God, I pray that it would be a restoration for us to come back to you. God, I pray you'd give us faith to really, truly dedicate that time. God, I pray for those uh, that, that when they look at their work schedule, they look at their life schedule right now, they, they, they don't feel they can give a full 24 hours. They legitimately can't for all the times they have to clock in. God, I pray that there'd be no guilt and no shame, but your spirit would come to remind them, Sabbath is meant for you, not you for the Sabbath. Take a Sabbath half day. Lord, I pray that you would help us move and be renewed, restarted, that our spirit could slow down and be quiet. Give us faith like Victoria that says, hold on, I think God's talking to me. Give us an ability to slow down and may it come as we observe your Sabbath because you, Jesus, are Lord of the Sabbath. Dwell with us today and all the days and dwell with us on power and restoration on that special day. Thank you, Lord. Amen.